to be reading 1 Peter, again, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you are being distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And through, and through you, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, just thank you for all that you have given us in Christ. Thank you for your word, Lord, um, to minister to us, to teach us, to instruct us. Lord, thank you that we are in Christ as we've placed our faith in him and for the ministry of your spirit, Lord. And, and I just again ask that as we are here gathered that, that we would just um, be those, God, who more truly worship you in spirit and truth. That, that our minds, our hearts, Lord, would be truly governed by what you have revealed to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we started um, with 1 Peter, as you can see. And in these first couple of verses here in the salutation, they're just um, packed, loaded here. And um, I'm not going to get as far this morning as what I just read. In fact, um, really not planning on getting past the first two verses again. But I thought I should at least read a little more scripture so you feel like, feel like we did a little bit more. Um, by way of review, the, in a nutshell here, what Peter is doing is addressing Jewish believers who have been um, dispersed throughout Asia Minor because of their faith in Christ. And to my understanding, to read this more literally as it was written, as Peter intended it to be written, basically it's saying that Peter was writing to the Jewish Christians who were chosen to reside as aliens scattered throughout Asia Minor. So in other words, the chosen here is not, has nothing to do in this context with their salvation, but rather to do with their circumstances and that these circumstances are not unknown to God. God knew what they were going to be going through. God had a plan for it. And that plan is working, is God working through these circumstances according to his knowledge, his foreknowledge. He knew beforehand that these things would be taking place for their sanctification. So that's why he says that you might, be, that you might obey Jesus Christ. And then secondly, and I think the word order was significant, that you might be sprinkled with his blood. 
So you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God that you might be in these circumstances because God's intent here is to sanctify you through the work of the Spirit and that in that that you might become increasingly more obedient to Jesus and identified with Christ even in His sufferings. Christ suffered. We should be armed with the same purpose that we too will suffer while in the flesh. So it's a powerful introduction to this letter, people who are struggling with their circumstances. And I just want to be be clear that though God knew in advance what these people were going to be going through, it has never been God's intent that when he made human beings, it was not his intent that we suffer, that we die, that we would be persecuted for our faith. These things were never God's intent. These things happen as a consequence of sin. Did God know in advance that we were going to sin? He knew. But God didn't plan these things. God didn't orchestrate these things. God let them happen, and God is in control of everything that happens. We want to be clear on this because God is not the origin of evil. And the Scripture never says that God is to be blamed or God is the cause of the evil that happens to us. He is in control of everything that happens, but He is not the cause of everything that happens. And Scripture is so consistent with that. So here Peter is encouraging these people. These things have not taken God by surprise, and God is in complete control of what is happening And he's using this to bring about your conformity to Christ at every level. Now, verse 2 is interesting also because in this little verse here, all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned. So again, look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ. Remember, Peter is a Jew writing to Jews. And we think, okay, he's just mentioned the Trinity. What's the big deal with that? Well, modern-day Jews don't believe in the Trinity. And yet Peter is a first-generation Christian who is writing to first-generation Christians about the triune God, and nobody has any problem with it. These people knew their Old Testaments. And as Peter is is making direct reference to the three persons of the Trinity, they knew he was not contradicting Scripture. There is nothing about the Trinity that is a New Testament doctrine. It runs right through Scripture all the way from Genesis 1 where God says, let us make man in our own image. This is not new. The Trinity doctrine that runs right through Scripture. It's become, I want to just spend... Um, the time this morning focused on that, the Trinity. We know there's several references in the the New Testament where it's very clear Jesus went at His baptism. It says that Jesus, the Son, went into the water and the Spirit of God descended upon Him and then God the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So all three persons. The Son is being baptized, the Spirit comes upon Him, and the Father is declaring His pleasure in it. We know in Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, we're told that we are to baptize one another in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three persons, again, being made mention of. 
I studied the Trinity in Bible college and in seminary. We talk about it frequently in terms of this is just what the Bible reveals. But it's one of those doctrines, and I maybe, you know, I can blame it on the professor. I don't think so. It's just me. But at the time, especially that class I had on Trinitarianism in, in seminary, uh, it, I found it only moderately interesting. Um, in fact, the scales would tip on the side of just boring. Um, and and I, that was really unfortunate. And as, as the years have gone by, and, and um, I came across a, a person who would consider himself an evangelical Christian, and I, and I heard him say one time that the doctrine of the Trinity is a Hindu concept, and that it is, it is not a doctrine in Scripture. That was pretty dis- dis- concerning to me. And a lot of times, we don't begin to really investigate things and learn things until we hear something like that, and we go, well, what does the Bible really say? And so for the first time, I really began looking at the doctrine of the Trinity with some motivation. Because here's a guy who professes to be an evangelical Christian, and he's telling me that the doctrine of the Trinity is a Hindu concept. And I'm going, I don't think so. So it really got me into looking at it again. And as I've already pointed out, that every truth of Scripture ought to make a personal difference in our lives. And God never meant these just to be academic things that we could just hang our hat on and go, okay, I, you know, I, I'm an evangelical because I believe these truths. But what difference does it make? And the Trinity, if it's true, truth ought to make a difference in our lives. So what practical difference does the Trinity make? So these are all things that have been rolling around in my brain for a while. And, um, and it's become, the doctrine of the Trinity has become um, something that warms my heart, I can honestly say today, where it didn't used to. And, and I don't, wouldn't say that, that it warms my heart more than the salvation doctrines, but it's right up there. It is very, very important. We all hate discord, conflict, division, Strife, divorce, death, these are things we absolutely hate. Why? If they're just natural things, why do we hate them so much? We hate them, I believe, because we instinctively know something is wrong with all of those things. It's not the way it ought to be. And the reason it's not as it ought to be is because it's not consistent with the Trinity. I'll develop that more in a minute. But those things are all alien and contrary to God himself. We had a student day at his hill on Friday, and uh, we did some relay games. (laughs) This... The staff, we had two staff teams, and I, I think we probably came in last and second to last. Well, there are two staff teams. We didn't do very well with these relay races. One of them was a little simple thing of just taking a bat and putting your forehead on it <laughs> and, and spin around 10 times while your team counted to 10, you know, 10 times around. And then take off running. It was only about 20 yards, but it might as well have been two miles. Um, and and I, I, I couldn't go very far. And, and I tell you, I dropped that bat, and, and it was like the whole world was on a tilt. 
and I'm just tilting, and I, and I, I could do nothing to stop myself, and I did a face plant right into the, <laughs> into the grass. And I got up, and it wasn't much better, and I thought, I, I, I thought I'm going to end up in the river, because, I mean, I just kept, it was a lot of fun. I'm still sore today. I messed up my elbow. I messed up my knee. Um, and I'm thinking, this is not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> Everything is wrong. And there's nothing I can do about it. You know that when we look at, at the created order, whether you're agnostic, atheist, or Christian, everybody sees the same thing. Because there, there's just objective truth out there that anybody, no matter what their theological persuasion is, can look at, and we're all going to see the same thing. And what we see is tremendous diversity. Enormous. It would almost seem to be infinite, but it's not. Diversity. And yet, in it all, it works in unity. And that's why we call it the universe. Did you know that? Because there is unity and diversity. It's the universe. It's not a multiverse. It is a universe. There is union, unity in everything that we see. This is why we call our schools of higher education universities. Because the goal at the university level is, it is, is trying to make sense how to harmonize all the diversity that we see in the world. And we look at it and we go, it works. Why does it work? And this is, this is all pointing us to the diversity and unity of the Godhead. Three persons who are one, absolutely one. When we look at the various components of what makes the universe, there are three aspects to the universe. Space, time, and matter. And each of those three is composed of three. Space is composed of length, width, and breadth. Time, past, present, and future. Matter, weight, mass, and area. And that didn't just happen. That the universe, with all of its diversity, is composed of three basic elements. And each of those three is composed of three. All of this is there for a reason to point us. It is God marking his creation with himself. That there is a one God who is himself three persons. God is one. To the Jews, there's probably no more important verse in all the Bible than Deuteronomy 6.4. And in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Behold, the Lord our God is one. He is one. Do you know what Deuteronomy 6.5 says? The next verse says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Why would those two verses go back to back? The word one, God is one, is not the Hebrew word for absolute one, where there is no parts. 
but it's the word one that's used of a marriage. In Genesis 2, 24, the Lord made Adam and Eve, male and female, and he said that they were to be one flesh. It's the same word that's used in Ezekiel where God says to Ezekiel, take two sticks, name one of them Judah, name the other one Joseph or Ephraim for the other ten tribes of Israel, take those two sticks and join them together and make one stick. It's one where it's been, where it's a one of union and not an absolute one. That's the word, the Lord our God is one. There is no division within him. It's not absolute in the sense of singularity, but rather union that can't be divided. This is why the next verse, if God is one, and he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one, we are to be one toward God, because we've been made in the image of God. Love the Lord your God with not part of your mind, or maybe even all your mind, but not all your strength. Or all your mind, all your soul, but not all your strength. It's, it's, it's not part here and there. Every aspect of our being is to be one because God is one. This is how God designed us. And it's consistently this way. Well, that's a contradiction. That's what the Muslims would tell us. It's a contradiction to say that you have one God, but you're worshiping three persons. But see, it's not a contradiction. If we said one God is three gods, or three gods is one God, that would be a contradiction. But that is not what the Scripture says. There is one God who is three persons. So we're not saying one category, God, is two separate Distinct things. We're not saying that. It's not one God is three gods, three God is one God, but the one God is three persons. And that's something we can't get our minds around completely, but it is what the Bible reveals. And when we come to, right from the beginning, with the Gospels, with Acts, with the letters that follow, we find the Jewish people seeing no theological problem with this. Because their minds were open to understand the scripture and they could see that throughout the Old Testament that we have three persons represented. This is why when the, when the Pharisees were trying to trip Jesus up, one of the things he did to silence them was to quote David in one of the Psalms. And he says, David said, the Lord said, quote, he says, the Lord said to my Lord. And Jesus is saying, how can he say that? What's he talking about? And it was a reference to the Trinity. And they weren't getting it at that time. But by the time they came to understand Jesus is fully God, their minds began to open up to understand this makes sense. This is consistent with Scripture and not a contradiction. That's one of the most amazing things about the starting of the church and it being Jewish in its first origins. Because these Jewish people are embracing not just salvation through faith in Christ, but they are embracing the Trinity. And they're rightly seeing no contradiction whatsoever with Scripture. This is absolutely unique to the Bible. One God, three persons. This is not the monotheism of Islam or modern Judaism. 
We cannot separate the concept of God from Jesus. Jesus is fully God. Salvation in the Bible is represented as not just being theocentric, but it is Christocentric. Our salvation is centered on the person of Jesus Christ, and that person is fully God. Think about the pantheistic religions. Hinduism is largely a pantheistic religion. Pantheism says God is in everything. Therefore, God is everywhere. God is all. Everything is God because God is in everything. So in pantheism, it's unity with no diversity. That's not right. That is not what the scripture reveals about God. Polytheism, there are many gods, but they're at odds with each other. So this was the Greek and Roman um, theology, was that there are multiple gods, and they were constantly at odds with each other, and you kind of had to play one off the other, and hopefully everything worked out all okay. Many gods at odds with each other, so there is diversity without unity. With monotheism, a strict monotheism, you have oneness without diversity. You see, none of this makes sense of what we see around us. What we see around us is unity and diversity. Where did that come from? You see, the creation bears witness of the creator. And so if what we're seeing is, is, is unity and diversity, then we would expect that our God would be the source of that, and it bears on him. It reflects him. So it can't be pantheism because there's no diversity. It can't be polytheism because there's no unity. It can't be monotheism because it's oneness without diversity. And think about that. If God were only one person, he would be incomplete, and he couldn't be God. We say that because God is love. Love, by necessity, has to have expression. And God would have nothing to love if God were one, in the sense of one person. But God is three persons. And so when the scripture tells us that God is love, God did not have to create us in order to express his love. He was fully satisfied, had perfect community before he ever created us. There was no need. God would be incomplete if he were one person. He would be unable to experience and know love, fellowship, community, before he created mankind. The Bible tells us that when God does anything, every one of the three persons of the Trinity are involved. Our salvation is not just the work of Jesus. Our being indwelt by the Holy Spirit is not just the Holy Spirit. The creation of this world was not just Jesus. And there are verses in the Bible, you can find them, when the, when the Bible speaks about the creation of the world, you can find verses that say all three persons created the world. When the Bible speaks of our salvation, all three persons are involved in the salvation. Even when the Bible speaks of us being indwelt, in John 14, Jesus says, the Spirit will indwell you, and then he also says, and I and my Father will also make our abode with you. There is nothing that God does 
in isolation from the others. There is perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. Now, when you think on the Trinity, these are some attributes, characteristics of the Trinity that are revealed to us in Scripture. Number one, joy. John 17, Jesus says, Father, make them one with us. Make them as one with us as I am with you, so that they might know our joy. You looking for joy? Perfect joy. Do you need joy? Are you looking? The Godhead is the place of pure joy. Love, peace, respect, appreciation, esteem, value, unity, harmony, oneness, trust. Fulfillment, community, constancy, stability, creativity, safety, even beauty. These are all things that characterize the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a perfect relationship. It is not dysfunctional. Have you found a family yet that's not dysfunctional? (laughs) You young couples, are you hoping that yours is going to be the first one? (laughs) There's only one community, one family, as it were, that is perfect. Everything you'd ever want is already there and has been there forever. You think the only thing that could possibly mess up that community is for you and I to be a part of it. And yet, we don't mess it up. And that's exactly what redemption is about. It's not just saving you and I from our sins. Redemption is about bringing us into that relationship. Again, John 17. Father, make them one with us, even as I am one with you. Now, that is awesome. There is no misunderstanding. There are no facades. There are no secrets. There's no duplicity. There's no darkness. There's no fear. There's no alienation. There's no hostility. There's no enmity. This relationship is welcoming. It is embracing. It's generous, hospitable, inclusive. It's everything we are starving for. Also, in that relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all these things that we we literally would die for. 
I mean, we are, every one of us is so motivated to lay hold of any one of these things, just to be treated as a person of worth, to go through one day without pain, to know one person that I can know this person will never, ever hurt me. We long for this. It's in the Trinity. It's amazing. And we've been invited to enter in to that perfect community, that perfect fellowship. But in that perfect fellowship, you realize there's also hierarchy. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 15 speak to this as other passages do. Where we're told, particularly in those two chapters of 1 Corinthians, that, that Jesus will, has always been in subjection to the Father and will always be in subjection to the Father. This is why we call him the eternal Son of God. He didn't become Son when he became man. He has for eternity been the Son of God. That means for eternity... He's been number two. Guess what that makes the Holy Spirit? Number three. And it's never going to change. The Father's always number one. Jesus is always number two. And the Spirit's always number three. And nobody's bummed out about it. They love it. And they're happy with it. And they're not ambitious to change it. It will always be this way. There is hierarchy. People say today, wherever you have hierarchy, you have inferiority. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are absolutely equal in essence. There is not one that is more God than the other. But they are distinct in their person and distinct in their roles. There is hierarchy. And there is complete value. Complete trust, complete esteem. And Peter's going to say in his letter, because this all comes down to earth, Peter's going to say in this very letter, Husbands, if you do not regard your wife as a co-heir of the grace of life, God's not going to hear your prayers. At the same time, he's going to say, Wives, submit to your husbands. Where does he get this stuff? It's sure not politically correct. He gets it from the triune God, co-equal. One is not demeaning the other. But there is authority, and there is submission, and it's perfect, and it's good. And nobody starts out a new day saying, oh, do I have to submit again? Yay, it is perfect. And the father's not passive, and he's not abusive. And as men, we err with both. We abuse our authority, or we don't use our authority. Passive or abusive. Well, that didn't come from God. Perfect authority, perfect submission, perfect community. It's amazing. It all works. It's all beautiful. It's good. 
So how does this apply to us? You can see it begins to speak for itself. That what is, tr- what, what is true of God himself. This is what family is to be. This is what church is to be. Ultimately, it's what society is to be. And again, this is why we are so grieved when it isn't the case. And we just don't even want to go on anymore. Sometimes I think, God, I can't handle another conflict. Just take me home. I'm so tired of the conflict. We weren't made for it. But where are we going to what are we going to do? And see that, that weariness of, of, of it being wrong, of every relationship being less than what it should be. It's meant to bring us to the perfect relationship with a sense of sadness, granted. But it's meant the, the very things that are causing us this Sadness, this weight, this grief are meant to lift our eyes to the perfect relationship. And we begin by faith to learn what it means to truly live in Christ and from Christ. Where my life is not just a sponge just trying to draw from everybody else around me what I can only get from the triune God. Looking for joy, looking for peace, looking for affirmation. We're never going to find it by demanding it from each other. But it's by entering into the perfect community of the Trinity. Hierarchy, submission, obedience, authority in themselves. They're good. Absolutely good. We take the good and make it bad. But there is nothing inherently bad about hierarchy, submission, obedience, or authority. It is the sin in our own hearts that tells us otherwise. Marriage and family are God's design for imaging to the world the triune God. The Trinity is truly the basis of family, marriage, and church. And I stress, marriage is necessary if the triune God is going to be imaged, not just family. Because you can have family without marriage. So why not? Why is it okay just to form families apart from marriage? Because, again, it's a lie about God. In the Godhead, it's not just family, but it is commitment. And marriage is commitment. And God never intended us to be able to have community, to have family, apart from commitment. They have to go together. To insist on absolute sameness... To deny diversity between husband and wife, which is what our culture tells us to do. 
between men and women in the church, which even the church is telling us now, between boys and girls in society. So now the Boy Scouts are no longer the Boy Scouts, they're the Boy and Girl Scouts. To insist on absolute sameness and to disregard the diversity is a practical denial of the triune God. Three distinct persons. We cannot deny the distinctions without, without denying God, who is three distinct persons. To insist on union without diversity, where do we do that? Racism. And I'll never forget the shock it was to me when my, one of my brothers was, took his first position at a church in El Dorado, Arkansas. And, and I went to visit him, and he informed me that that community in El Dorado, Arkansas, had two First Baptist churches, one for whites and one for blacks. I was shocked. That is an affront to God. That is, that is all but blasphemy when we do that kind of thing. Because it is a lie against God. Homosexuality is no different. To think that we could have the oneness of marriage without diversity is a lie. You cannot have true oneness without having diversity. God is three distinct persons, each with his own role. And for a church to be functioning as God truly intended, it's not going to be one age group, one sex, or one race. But there will be diversity with the oneness. And the same is true for a marriage. That's why a homosexual marriage will never be a marriage. Because it is, there is no diversity. Community, we all need it. To try to live without relationship, without family, without church, you can't do it. You cannot thrive and live in isolation. The most isolated man I ever met, <laughs> interesting fellow, back in the hills of North Carolina, and um, wasn't a believer, but he was a man that just was just terribly afraid of being with people. He had built a two-story log house with his own hands, just going into areas where the, where the power companies were cutting down trees and he would go in there at night and just pick up the trees and he knocked out the back window and the front windshield of his Volkswagen bus and would just run trees all the way through his bus and, and then take them home. And he built this beautiful two-story home back in the hills of North Carolina. And I went over to see him. Pat's and I were there and amazing itself that we even got into his home. And he, um, he said, man, I want to show you something you've probably never seen before. And he opened up his, his curtain. And here, one of these big hornet's nests, you know, foot and a half, two feet long, the hornets had built right against his window. So when you opened up the, the, the curtains, you could see directly into the hornet's nest. It was like it was just a bisection of it. 
and you can see the entire hornet's nest. And I'm going, this is awesome, man. You can have school field trips over here. You can pack this house because the kid's going to go, oh, he just starts to freak out because this man never, I mean, he'd never been around more than two people, I think, in years. And bringing whole classrooms through at the same time is going, not going to happen. But that man slowly started opening up, started coming to a, a church fellowship meeting that, that Patsy and I were part of and some other friends there were part of. And, and, it was just, and it was just neat to see this man just start to open up as a human being again. God never intended for us to live in isolation. We need community. Why? Because, again, it speaks of the Trinity. To try to live without submission and without authority is to say that we can be complete while being alone. And this, too, is a denial, a practical denial of the triune God. To seek joy outside a committed relationship. And everything around us says that you can have absolute fulfillment and joy in a relationship with no commitment. That is a lie. It is a denial of the triune God. To have union in society outside of Christ is at best artificial. In fact, it's really anti-Christ. Society without Christ is anti-Christ. It is a denial of the one who is the source of all unity and holds all things together. What should be our response to the Trinity? Once we understand, begin to understand, everything you need Everything you've been created for is, is in the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you don't know Jesus, boy, it's my prayer and hope that you'd begin to see what you're starving for can only be found in that relationship. And you will never have what you need in what you've been created for until you place your faith in Christ. And Jesus says, welcome to the family. The family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's pretty awesome. When we are so corrupt, so dysfunctional, and God says, it's your home now. My home is your home. Welcome home. The first response should be a response of faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. The second response should be to embrace the community of believers, the body of Christ. With its full equality, no person is more filled with the Spirit, I should say no person is no, is no more indwelt with the Spirit than another person called the priesthood of the believers. We all equally possess the Spirit of God. Equality. The community of believers, was also, which also has the headship of Jesus Christ. He is the head. 
and also has authority that's in place. We need this. If you think that you can do well without the community of being in relationship with God, if you think you can do well without the community of the church, which is the body of Christ, you will be disappointed. This is not what God intended. We should embrace God's design for family, which is commitment, unconditional love unto death, equality, diversity, and headship and submission. Because again, these things are all in the Godhead. We should accept and yield to God as Father. And for some, that is a bigger step of faith than others. But He is Father. For some, that word conjures up great fear and pain. But He is Father. And He is a good Father. It means acknowledging our common adoption into His family, His authority, His love, our union with Him and each other. It means we worship Him as He truly is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One person has said the answer for the world's divisions, and I think we could say the answer for the family's division, the answer for the church's division, is not a common humanity, but a common parentage. We must be one in Christ. With the students, we just watched that movie that came out a couple years ago, Woodlawn, story of all the racial strife that was going on in Birmingham, Alabama, 1970s. Powerful story. What turned that city around from just, from the bombings, the shootings, the stabbings, from just total destruction that was taking place in that city were football players on a high school team placing their faith in Christ, whites and blacks. And then two high schools with the coaches, rival coaches, both placing their faith in Christ. And then when those two teams played each other in the stadium, biggest stadium in the, in the um, state, it never had more than 20,000 people come out for a high school football game. It says there were 43,000 that came out and another 20,000 that couldn't get in that had to be turned away. And they came because they recognized something's different here. And it's not football players. It's the spirit of Jesus Christ taking people who are enemies and making them one. The answer for this world is not in common humanity. There is no answer until we have a common parent. Common parentage in Jesus Christ. Every division, every heartache, every disappointment should point us back to the perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we say to each other, 
we're never going to be right with each other until we are right with God. And we live from Him. Truly living from Him. Perfect oneness. I'll close this in prayer.